This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I know I say that at the start of every show, but I do mean it, and I especially mean it at the moment because, well, it looks like we're we're heading into a, a, another difficult period with the coronavirus, with a rise in infections, whether it's a second wave or a third wave, whatever it might be, cases are rising. There are going to be restrictions for many of us where we live. That's certainly the case here in Ireland, and I know it's going to be the case in, in some of the places where you guys are. So I just want to say, especially right now, that I hope you and yours are feeling well, healthy, and safe physically and also mentally. It is difficult to deal with for various reasons. I know it's more tricky for some people than for others. So wherever you are, Please do whatever it takes to keep yourself well and happy, uh, well, as happy as can be in circumstances like the ones that we're living in. Arsenal could do a bit to keep us happy and make us happy. We'll have to wait and see how that goes over the coming weeks. We've got a big game this weekend against Manchester City, which FA Cup apart, (laughs) when we've beaten them in the semi-final this year and when we beat them in the semi-final in 2017. When it comes to the league, though, it's not been a happy fixture for us in any way. Um, So it would be nice if we could correct that course when Mikel Arteta returns to his former club to take on his former boss, Pep Guardiola, uh, at the whatever the fuck stadium it is that Manchester City play in. I can't remember what it's called. The fucking... Abu Dhabi Hyperdome or whatever the fuck. Anyway, look, that's what's coming up this weekend. And of course, it gets busy now because we've had this weird two weeks off with an interlull that seems to have gone by very quickly. But I can't figure out if it's because it went by actually quickly or if just in my mind, all the days are kind of rolling into one and you lose track of the the boredom and the days. It doesn't feel like one of the longest interlulls we've ever had. So um, it's over. There's another one next month, unfortunately. And of course, part of the problem with that is um, players going away and the increased exposure that they have to the coronavirus. You will have seen that there's an ongoing issue with Kieran Tierney at the time of recording. We still don't know if Kieran Tierney is going to be able to play this weekend against Man City because he, not that he was um, tested positive for the for the virus, but somebody who he was in close contact with tested positive for the virus last week, 
way back last week uh, as well. But because he is expected or required to isolate for 14 days, we may not have him for the game against Manchester City, whereas other players who are and have been uh, away on international duty uh, with groups in which there have been members who have tested positive are not required to isolate for the same period of time. So there's some strange goings on there because there doesn't appear to be like a, a what's the word I'm looking for here, or everything, a uniformity, I guess, uh, when it comes to applying the various rules regarding quarantine or self-isolation. So a confor- conformity, is that what I'm... Is that what I'm looking for? I don't know. Anyway, look, we've got a lot of football coming up uh, in the next few weeks anyway. So, fingers crossed, uh, everyone who was away has come back uh, healthy and we have as full a squad as we can possibly have for the game against Manchester City. Then, of course, there's Europa League. We've got Leicester City the following week, more Europa League, Manchester United. So, there's loads going on. Games are coming thick and fast. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how we cope with those fixtures and what sort of rotation Mikel Arteta applies to his team for Europe, keeping players fresh for the Premier League, etc., etc. We do, of course, as well, have a brand new signing, somebody who could be in the team for the game against Manchester City. Thomas Partey arrived on transfer deadline day. He had his first training session with the team on Thursday. Is that enough for him to start? We will wait and see. But you would fancy your chances of something different against Manchester City if there was something different in the team itself, rather than asking more or less the same players to go out and do the thing they haven't been able to do beforehand. So if you add, you know, a new centre half and a new uh, new central midfielder like Thomas Partey, maybe, maybe we can book the trend, so to speak, against Manchester City. But look, that's to come Saturday evening, and of course we'll be doing all the uh, the usual stuff on site for that. A little bit later on, I will give you the winner of last week's competition, which was a chance to win a copy of Nicholas Bentner's book. Stay tuned for that. I'll give you the uh, the winner, and we'll get the details and get that book sent out. But there's a fair bit been going on. There's a fair bit been. There has been a fair bit going on over the interlull uh, to keep us talking. Not necessarily Arsenal-related specifically, but of course something that could have a big impact on football as we know it, on the Premier League and more. So with me to discuss that, and it's always a pleasure to welcome him back to the podcast, it's Philippe Auclair. Good morning, Philippe. Good morning to you. Good morning. Let's start with the big story of the week because it has been an international break. There's been uh, Arsenal news short on the ground. We are going to talk a bit about Thomas Partey uh, a bit later on uh, because uh, that is an exciting part of what happened during this international break. But, Philippe, project big picture. Um, We're in an era where everything has to be called project something now. Project restart, project big picture, project you know, get all the money for ourselves, whatever it might be, (laughs) unanimously voted down by Premier League clubs this week, despite the fact that two Premier League clubs were highly involved in putting this thing together. Um, (laughs) Look, how, just on a very surface level, did you feel about this when the stories emerged over the weekend about what it might mean for the for the big clubs? Obviously, more voting power, um, mm. but more importantly, I think more money for the so-called big six and a couple of other clubs that were involved. Um, first of all, what the, my first um, reaction was one of surprise when I learned that the discussions had been ongoing between uh, Rick Parry 
um, Manchester United and Liverpool since 2017. You know, when Rick Perry obviously at that time was just an independent consultant. He was not the uh, um, at the head of the uh, of the football league. So I was a bit surprised by that. And I was also very surprised to hear that the Premier League and the FA had absolutely no idea that this was being uh, mooted behind their backs, as it were. And then my immediate, my second reaction was, uh, this is a power grab. This is a a coup d'etat, a putsch, a golpe, whichever way you want to to look at it. And and in fact, the rest, in in a way, is... um, are almost details. The the fact that the Premier League would go down to 18 clubs, that there would be no League Cup, no Community Shield, yeah. uh, only two relegated teams, then uh, playoffs and all these sort of things. They looked, they sounded to me very much like details. And the, of course, the important thing was all about the voting rights. Yeah. And, and and everything goes from there because even, you know, the proposals they, they put uh, of having eight games, I believe, uh, uh, being shown uh, or the, the clubs would have uh, commercial rights uh, over eight of their games and could also show highlights live of, of, of their games on their own digital platforms. Uh, in a way, that is a consequence of the most important thing, which is basically the abandonment of the collegial and democratic structure of the Premier League. And, um, and basically, the uh, all power being concentrated in the so-called super shareholders um, Chosen a bit at random, to be honest, because I'm, I'm, I'm questioning myself, what is Manchester City doing in there? Well, I, I know that sounds crazy to say that, but they're not one of the nine big clubs, historically speaking, of the Premier League. They're not, because they were not in the Premier League yeah. for as long as other clubs. Well, they're one of the richest. Yes, but if it's, yeah. if it's all about uh, money uh, and how much money they, they are worth... Um, be honest, I, I, I didn't think that was the criterion that was that was chosen. I thought that was a historical criterion that was chosen. Um, but anyway, well, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, look, you, if you're going to look at it from that point of view, we could ask, you know, uh, leaving all jokes about our, our terrible neighbours aside, you know, mm-hmm. why are Tottenham in it? They haven't won the league since 1961. Aston Villa have got a better case to be involved in this I, I, so-called I big six. <laughs> we shouldn't go there. Or perhaps we should. <laughs> we should. Uh, it would be very entertaining. Uh, but um, uh, no, it's, it's basically a power grab because basically you take away the voting rights of, of the clubs to give them to nine clubs and then it's majority of two-thirds uh, so it's six clubs and these six clubs happen to be the richest clubs. so mm. basically that's a power grab and and what is also i mean i don't know i mean the what surprises me is that these kind of leaks never happen by chance they're always done on purpose it's not that suddenly sam wallace of the telegraph uh, found a briefcase on, on the tube as he was going <laughs> to headquarters opened it and here was project whatever name you want to give it, it has been leaked. And uh, by whom is an interesting question. And I couldn't possibly go into that, even though a few names are circulating in the, in, in the microcosm. Uh, but it was leaked on purpose. So your, so, yeah, your, your assertion or your, your suspicion might be that, you know, part of this story coming out now, the way that it did was uh, what they might call in political terms, kite flying, in that mm-hmm. they put out information, see what the reaction is to it, and yeah. then reassess and repackage the, the, the project, if you like, to make it more um, acceptable for public consumption while still getting what they want. Yes, and, and um, as somebody who's been uh, one of the 
<laughs> I know that's a strange parallel, but I, I, I've been looking after the residents association in my part of London for 20 years now. So I've had a lot to do uh, with developers, those lovely people. Mm. And and basically what they're doing uh, is exactly what the property developers do when they have a project uh, which includes some pretty nasty uh, impacts, environmental impact or impact of any kind on, on the community at large. So what they always do is that their first plan is like an office tower block, which is the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life, which is 45 stories high. Mm. And then there is an outcry. And then it becomes 38 stories, and it's not quite as ugly. Then it finishes at about 17 stories, which is actually probably five more than they they were hoping for in the beginning. (laughs) But people have been so used, and and people have been bullied and bulldozed, uh, mentally speaking, so that they they finally accept it, thinking that they got a good deal. When, in fact, if a proposal for even an eight-story building on that particular site had been proposed from the word go, they'd have said no. Mm. So it's it's the oldest trick in the book. And... um, I, I mean, I, I read the uh, EFL statement, which they, they published, uh, uh, and which specifies that, oh, the, the, the project is by no means final and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm actually not quoting the exact words, but that's the meaning of the, of the statement is that, well, we have to look at it more closely and it can be changed, you know, and all the details are not there. It's not cast in, you know, in concrete or stone mm-hmm. or whatever. So we can change that. And, and, and of course, the timing is also very important because it, it, it just so happens that it's in the middle of a pandemic that these proposals are being made when basically the EFL clubs have absolutely nobody to turn to to um, to get any money and when their very survival their very existence uh, is at stake and and since the project itself wouldn't change much for most of those league clubs who basically have no ambitions of being one day members of the premier league and if you're telling them well here's 250 million uh, have it um, but just support us they'll probably say yes yeah I because mean- they have no choice and which is i i have to say i find in morally very difficult to uh, accept that and to defend this kind of attitude, sure. this kind of bullying. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, you say morally, it, it feels kind of repugnant that they would take advantage. I mean, nothing should surprise us, really, when it comes to, you know, an industry like football with owners who want to uh, ensure that they get the most, um, you know, the, the prospect of a European Super League looms large. It's been on the agenda for a long time, but it feels spectacularly cynical, doesn't it, at this moment in time? when everybody yeah. is struggling the way that they are. And that's not just football clubs, that's people in general. Um, you know, for these rich owners of these big clubs to come along and put this thing together to sort of dangle it in front of clubs who, like you say, have literally no choice but to to think this is a good idea. Uh, you know, for many of them, they're never going to be in the Premier League anyway, so it doesn't matter to them if Arsenal or Man City or Tottenham have got more voting rights than Burnley. You know, it makes no difference mm-hmm. to them whatsoever but it is like vultures circling over the dying man in the desert isn't it yeah and um again i can't give names but i've, I've talked to one uh, executive from the football league um just a couple of days ago and that person was genuinely incensed by the whole thing but was telling me uh, it might be that we don't have any choice but to support it, even though we find it really completely unacceptable in moral terms. But we are so desperate that 
you know, if there is money coming. And, you know, it's like the, the, the British government has basically said that it, it thought that this project was not the, the right thing to do. But on the other hand, the British government is doing absolutely nothing to support football at, at, at that level. Absolutely mm. nothing. You know, when you compare to other countries in Europe, it certainly is doing far less. Um, even in terms of loans and things like that, and uh, it's it's so basically they're saying one thing: uh, this is bad, and and they're doing absolutely nothing to prevent it from from happening. If it happens, I mean, it's it's going to take a bit more time than that because there are, of course, huge implications. Um, first of all, uh, the role of the FA in in that is is. Is, is absolutely crucial because they've got the, the so-called golden share, which basically gives them the right to veto any uh, decision uh, taken by the Premier League, which would endanger in its size the integrity of the competition. So that's very important. And the FA is totally opposed to that. So there's going to be, they'll have to find a way to sweet talk the FA into that. Um, and, and if we look beyond um, this, um, uh, Andrew, if we place ourselves in the... Uh, in a position where you think, well, actually, something akin to project whatever, whatever, uh, will be in place uh, probably, uh, you know, after the current, for example, uh, broadcasting um, cycle is over because, you know, <laughs> it would be a bit difficult, wouldn't it, mm. to completely change everything in the middle of a cycle. Um, it would be, for me, it's pretty obvious it's the first steps towards the establishment of a European Super League, which is a closed league. Um, I, 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 for me, it totally partakes of the same logic, which is not by uh, coincidence driven by uh, American clubs um, or American-owned clubs, excuse me, uh, who basically have – they've always been on the same you – know, they've always had this idea that football was undervalued, uh, which it probably is, and that the only way for football to get its proper economic um, – to, to go to the, you know, to, to give its maximum, economically speaking, was to actually copy a kind of franchise system uh, at, on the, at, at European level and perhaps even beyond that. So it's all part of the same project, which is project annihilation of football as we know it. Um, yeah. And it, it's, and, and, and you might think, well, why would, you know, changing the Premier League change anything with what's going to happen with it as regards the EuroLeague and so forth? Well, it's because it basically gives all the rights to the people, the voting rights, to mm. the people who would be involved in the EuroLeague. So it's just as simple as that. If you give them all the power, they'll be able to do whatever the hell they want. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that stood out for me was the fact that these uh, clubs could, if they wanted to, veto any change in yep. ownership by any other Premier League club, which just tells you exactly what their motivations are for that. The idea that, you know, let's say somebody comes along and decides, you know, to, to pump X amount of money into Sheffield United or, or Burnley or another club like that, which could... Uh, have an influence on the on the competitiveness of that team mm -hmm. they can absolutely put that to bed and I think you know sometimes it's difficult isn't it we know that there's a financial disparity uh, between the top of the Premier League and the bottom we know that there is a, a sporting disparity as well but there mm. is still in some way relative competition you know the, the Premier League can uh, provide 
I guess, a, a, a measure of competitiveness, you know, on the pitch, despite some of those, yeah. um, those differences. What this would do, uh, and you mentioned the word integrity uh, a few minutes ago, is completely obliterate any measure of sporting integrity from the Premier League. And what it would become, essentially, is entertainment ahead of sport and some might argue that it's there already and you know we're we're maybe seeing that play out because games are being played uh, without fans and everything else so this sort of football reality tv show is going on in front of our eyes without any of our participation but this would take it to a different level i think yeah completely and and uh, on so many um, uh, on, in so many aspects and and by the way it's not just the men's game it's also the women's game um, mm. You might have noticed that one of the provisions was uh, the, in, uh, basically the creation of a professional women's league, which would be totally independent from the Premier League and from the FA. Mm. Now, when you hear totally independent, understand one thing. It means totally dependent on the big guys because they know it's one of the biggest growth sectors, potential growth sectors of football in Britain and in, in the world. So they want to have their share of the action and they want to be the, the bosses of what happens uh, on, on that side um i mean it's uh, it's very difficult not to to be extremely um it's not even concerned about it um uh, because the more you look into it you really feel at times that this is this um this this big shadow is is growing and growing over you and you think surely it cannot grow more than that but mm. it will it will and when you talk about competitivity and integrity, there are other things in there which are, which would have a massive impact. Um, for example, uh, the end of parachute payments. Now, parachute payments are not perfect, and you could say that they actually distort a competitivity uh, within the championship. But what they also do is that parachute payments enable teams which drop into the championship to actually keep hold of some of their best-played players, which when they go back, because most of them do go back, uh, at the top level, mm. mean they're not coming back from the level of, say, <laughs> a Fulham, if you excuse me, um, uh, or a club which has gone through the playoffs. They, 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 they are actually well equipped already to deal with what's going to happen. For example, this is what happened to Newcastle uh, with Benitez or with Burnley with Sean Dyche. Uh, they were able to um, to go back very quickly. And because they went back very quickly and they had had the parachute payments, they were able, in a way, to finance their way to, to go up. Now, that's, if that's over, it means that the cl- and, and the help is distributed more fairly and evenly, which in itself, you know, is not bad. I'm not saying that every single proposal is bad, in, in, you know, when you look at the detail. But we should look at the big picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it means that the, club coming, the clubs coming from the championship would certainly be on an economic level completely uh, blown out of the water. By, by whoever they find themselves with. And similarly, if you now have the rights to, uh, as, as you were you know, uh, saying yourself, to sell eight of your own games, plus show the highlights on your, on your platforms, which will have an impact on the value of the actual um, product on other platforms, i.e. to bring it down, then suddenly the ratio in terms of broadcasting revenue, which is 1, 1 to 1.6 in the Premier League, by far the, the fairest in, on the planet, would probably go to something which is closer to one to three or one to four, one to five, which is what we see in other leagues, mm. with the results with what we see in other leagues, 
where there is actually very little competitivity left. And 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 in itself, this is perverse because it leads the top guys to say, look, you know, PSG, Bayern, Juve, Real Madrid, Barcelona, blah, blah, blah. They win all the titles. Why don't they actually fight it against each other? That would be much more interesting, wouldn't it? Mm. You see, that's it's part of the same reasoning, the same yeah, yeah. rationality. And of course, uh, I mean, do we need to even say that? The, the the Premier League wasn't consulted, the FA wasn't consulted, and of course the fans were not consulted. Well, there you so, go. I mean, yeah, the fans um, really, look, it's it's trite or, or perhaps reductive to say fans are an afterthought. Um, but, you know, we saw it as well, didn't we, with, with some of the stuff that's going on with the games that are going to be broadcast on TV. And I think there is a, a, a line running through all this when you mention broadcasting rights and potentially clubs being able to manage their own broadcasting rights, maybe. Maybe that's something mm-hmm. that will will tie in with all this, but the games that are going to be on TV um, broadcast by by Sky and BT on their pay per view channels at, at fifteen euros per game. Again, it seems to ignore the the current situation that many people find themselves in financially. Um, you know, I'm reading this morning that the parts of the UK are going into a more strict lockdown. We're doing the same here in Ireland. It's happening in Spain. Yep. I know. My daughter, who I haven't seen for the best part of a year now, is in Barcelona. They're going into more lockdown. And the reality that that is going to have on business, on on the economy, on society, all of those things, it seems to be completely missing from the thoughts of the people who are putting this in place. They're asking people to pay 15 euros per game um, to watch their team. And it, it feels short-sighted to me. It feels greedy. Um you know, this is on top of the subscriptions that people already pay. I looked mine up um, yesterday because I wasn't 100% sure how much I uh-huh. was paying. Are you still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm listening intently because Sorry. I was wondering. I've done the same calculation, so carry on. Okay, so I was. Uh, I, I looked at my Sky bill, um, and for just basic Sky television, I've got the Sky Sports, obviously, and I've got the Sports Extra package, which gives me uh, BT Sport and Premier Sport, you know, and, uh, to watch all the, the football that I need to watch or that is broadcast on TV. It's 126 euros a month. And now it's 15 euros or 15 pounds per game on top of that. I mean, are they out of their minds? Especially since uh, for people who are so keen to fight against piracy, well, thank you guys. You've just given people who want to go to those funny websites with .ru and others, uh, you've just given them the perfect um, excuse to do that. It, it would be an encouragement for people to actually use um, uh, illegal networks to, um, mm. to watch the games. Because, yeah, I mean, 15 quid for, um, or 15 euros uh, to, to watch a game on, on top of the money you're already spending. I mean, I, I don't know. I would ask myself the question. But I probably would be better off, you know, going to see my local team play, which is about eight quid to get in yeah well i mean uh, when we can and, and when then, we can do know, that I, again if i buy a pint a pint and uh and the transport there it's going to cost me 15 quid but i'll be with my mates as well because the public is allowed in those lower league games and i think a lot of people are going to do that but i think it is based on again it's maybe i'm simplifying oversimplifying it but i i do think that a lot of this is driven by america an american model and um, and that the American model just looks at the numbers and says, okay, 
how much does it cost to follow football in the US, United States of America? And uh, the answer to that, Andrew, is shitload of money, mm. far, far more than what you're paying. It's unbelievably expensive. It's hundreds of dollars a month. And they're thinking, okay, so which means that football is undervalued, clearly. So they, they see the numbers and basically they think, well, what the American consumer is accepting to pay, maybe the European consumer will pay. And, and also it, it, it is another example perhaps of kite flying because 15 quid. If you said five quid, I think people would say, yeah, okay, yeah. fiver. Press of a pint, that's all right, I'll, I'll pay that. And I'll give some more money to my club. I want my club to do well. And, and then suddenly I think when it goes to that extent, it's like, shit, 15 quid, that's a lot of money. You know, that's two hours of work for people on the minimum wage. Mm. Two hours of work to watch two hours of empty stands. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? This is, this is not the, the full razzmatazz, razzle-dazzle product of the Premier League. This is a facsimile of football being played behind closed doors with fake crowd noise, no people in the stands, no atmosphere, which, again, you know, I don't need to say this, but it is such an intrinsic part of what makes football so enjoyable, whether you're uh, a neutral spectator, whether you're a fan of a team or not. The noise of the crowd, the, the, the emotion of a crowd, the way it can impact a game, the way the game can impact a crowd, you know, all of those things are, are part of what um, in our lifetimes has made football such an amazing, beautiful, incredible thing. And yeah. that's gone. And they're still trying to charge top dollar. Yeah, because it is, <laughs> to quote Joe Pesci, it is what it is. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's their logic it's their business logic and and you would you would think at one point you know you would say well surely you cannot be only motivated by money and in fact everything that comes back your way thinks well actually yes they are mm. yes they are they might enjoy some of the things around making loads of money but it really doesn't really matter much um i'm i'm interested to see for example that and I, I'm, I'm, I'm moving this to, a, to a, a different area, but not completely. I, I was looking recently at this really interesting story of Liverpool, you know, going public, uh, but not through an IPO, but through one of those new uh, business animals, monsters, which are created uh, in the US, which are, which are called blank check companies. And Liverpool, apparently, if I believe the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, are um, uh, very keen in, uh, to have uh, to offer 25% of their capital to one of those companies, which is run by Billy Bean and Jerry Cardinale. Uh, Billy Bean, you know, Moneyball, and mm -hmm. Jerry Cardinale of Red Bull Holdings, the guy who recently bought Toulouse in France. And 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 you think, wow, this is there is a model at work here, which is escaping us a little bit, we, which, you know, this is the real big picture. We, we don't quite understand what's going on, but there is this suddenly, well, not suddenly, we are seeing the project take over, which originated in the States. We're seeing it happening now. And guess who is on the board of Red Bull, who would be the main partner of Liverpool in this new venture? Richard Scudamore. 
Wow, there's a guy with some uh, inside knowledge of the Premier League anyway. Yes, and, and a guy as well. And I remember I, 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 I knew Richard Scudamore, and I would say I know Richard because I, I actually enjoyed his company. I think he's a remarkable, he was a remarkable executive, whether you like what he did or not. He's a remarkable man, very intelligent, incredibly smart. And one thing he was always saying is that the historical... Uh, what the Premier League, its actual value is a, a lot, has a lot to do with the, the historicity of its teams, the fact that there is something very much alive in there. And when he was talking about it, there was genuine passion in his voice. It was not something for the, you know, for public consumption. Mm. And I'm trying to understand, well, how can you possibly, you know, put those two things together? Don't you realize that what you're doing is actually you're killing this? You're killing the very uh, fabric of what is amazing in one of the, is amazing in football mm. the fact that you know we 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 as arsenal fans um we still we know about Woolwich arsenal and we still revere herbert chapman and and so on and and so forth and we can carry on like this through through the generations but basically what you're proposing is a football in which this doesn't matter anymore mm. Um, and it might be that for some people it doesn't matter anymore. If I, I, I look in France, for example, which is not a country which has got a strong football culture, um, the, the fans, the young fans I meet now have got little to no knowledge of, of their own past and don't seem to care much about it. It's still something which is incredibly important in, in English football and Scottish football, but it's not necessarily the same in other countries. So... And, 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 and in, or in the United States, where you can have a, you know, a, a franchise can move from one city to the next, mm. in, be a thousand miles away from its fans, and then get new fans. And then you see what happened with RB Leipzig. And you're thinking, my goodness, this is, it really is a horrible time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe there's an element, of, I, I think you might have touched on something there, that maybe there is an element of this being aimed not at generations like ours, but those coming yeah. up for whom it will, I'm not saying it's normal, but it's not such a massive break in, in you know, what, what you're used to. Um, and a, a tale, excuse me, Andrew, to interrupt you, but a telltale sign is this thing that uh, clubs would be able to uh, show live highlights of their own games. Mm. That's the way a lot of people who are, I would say, under the age of 30 consume uh, their football. They watch highlights. They, they watch video clips. They don't watch all the boring stuff, uh, which we like. You know, mm. like the bore, the, you, you have to be bored to be excited uh, for me. And if you're not bored at all, it's not exciting mm. um, when something actually happens. <laughs> but it, it's, it's really talking to that demographic. You well, know, yeah. what if I distillate, you know, instead of being bored for 90 minutes, you don't have the time. You're always on the hoof. You want to check your phone, whatever. Hey, every time there's a goal or, or, or a super act of skill, uh, here it is on your mobile phone. Bing! Notification. Mm. And, and, and that's it. And for, I guess for some people, that would be enough. Yeah. Well, look, we're heading in a direction I thought we were always going to go in, but I didn't quite expect it this soon, uh, particularly in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, which just makes it feel uh, even more cynical than it already is. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. But I want to move on, and I realize that in doing that and moving to a completely different topic, having spent the time that we've spent talking about big clubs and money and all that kind of stuff, we, we kind of have to acknowledge that um, Arsenal spent £45 million, pounds, £50 million pounds on, on Thomas Partey on deadline day. And for all the talk of, of money and finances and how terrible things are, at the same time, um, there was this clamour for Arsenal to spend and yeah. to spend big and the the how you sort of deal with job losses and redundancies versus what you might call capital investment in the team. I think that's an individual thing. People can rationalise those things themselves. So I don't want to sit here and preach or anything like it. But Arsenal have brought in Thomas Partey from Atletico Madrid. And I'm curious as to your thoughts, not on the finances really, because there's no point going into that, but on the player himself and, and what sort of a signing this is for the team and what does it say about the backing that the club uh, and the ownership are, are giving Mikel Arteta it was late it came yep. very late in the window and had we not made a signing like this I think I would have you know had some questions about like what is what does it say to Mikel Arteta if you do the job that he's done over the last eight nine months winning a trophy putting things on track again or, or hopefully on track and you know while other clubs are spending, we're not giving him the resources he needs to to make the team as competitive as as we need. So, your thoughts on on the player and the signing and and the, the sort of the overall meaning behind it? Um, wow, I mean the the player. I think some uh, some of my friends are telling me that he would have a transformative impact on on the team. I, I'm not entirely sure of that. Um, what I know is that. Uh, we're certainly uh, getting um, player of, of the highest quality. Um, do you remember his performance against us uh, in uh, the Europa League 2018? He was playing right back. At the Emirates? Uh, yeah. No, I don't really no. remember. 
Um, I just all I can remember is the massive frustration in that game because they were down to ten men, weren't they? And they equalized. Oh, Griezmann, yeah, please, yeah, yeah okay. I but I didn't want to mention the G name, but, <laughs> uh, but but he was playing at right back, and which is and and suddenly he looked like it's a bit like Michael Essien. I remember playing one of his best games for Chelsea at at, at right back because he's that he was that good a player. Mm. And and similarly, Partey is is really <laughs> what people say a. a as Arsene would say, a top, top player. Mm. Um, there's no doubt about that. Now, what he brings, of course, is, I mean, you, you, if you're so successful with Diego Simeone, it shows that you've got certain qualities that will always be welcome in any club. It shows that you're a team person. Uh, it shows that you've got fantastic engine on you. It shows that um, you, you are very generous in, in your efforts. It also shows that you're probably better on the ball than people think you are because that's a typical... Atletico Simeone thing. When you actually look at those players, you think, mm. oh, they look a bit, they run a lot, around a lot, but you realize when they're on the ball, they're also not that bad. Um, I mean, it, it will bring dynamism, it will bring energy that we don't quite have. It will be, uh, bring physical presence. It won't bring an awful lot of goals, that's, that's for sure, but it will bring drive as well. And so when I put all of this together, you think, well, yeah, is there another player in our, in our side who has these qualities? Not really. The the only one for me was Lucas Torreira, but who physically is not quite the same kind of person at all, same kind of no. player at all. Uh, Partey has I got on top of all the qualities we associated with Lucas, um, um, the and, and and more. But he had he has also got a, a physical presence that um, that is pretty impressive. So you think, yeah, um, uh, is it is it going to be transformative? I think it's going to help a lot. Uh, but I still think that we're still a little bit short in terms of creativity and that he will not necessarily bring that element to uh, to the table. Could it be? That sorry. If, he had, if he had had Awar plus Partey, I can tell you I would be jumping on the table. But um, I, 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 it, it was impossible because the club simply financially cannot afford it. And I was already surprised they could, they could actually pay that amount of money mm. uh, for a single player. That's pretty damn amazing. Uh, uh, as a decision, especially seeing where, you know, what the Kronker's attitude to spending this kind of money usually is. It seems to indicate to me, by the way, that uh, Mikel Arteta is genuinely growing into a managerial role. Um, and that's, you know, Raul Sanlehi going and all these people going left, right and center uh, might have actually put him in a position where he's more of a boss than than we thought perhaps he was. Yeah, I mean, could it be transformative in the sense that it allows us to play with about four more readily, therefore an extra player in midfield and the creativity Mm -hmm. issue can be somewhat offset by uh, the inclusion of another player higher up the pitch? Yeah, you, you you could do that. Even though I never, I, I don't know, but I, I might be completely wrong. I didn't think that the three at the back was something which was a, a philosophical choice by Arteta. Do you not, it was very much a, a pragmatic. I mean, he's well, a, that's he's what a, I mean. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, you he's do. An, sorry, I just mean that you know, obviously, the 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 quality of the defenders is an issue. So if you use three mm. of them, you're sort of offsetting some of the problems that they might have. But if you can offer a back four a little more protection and a little more structure in midfield with the right kind of player, you can then offset those issues by bolstering your midfield. And it means I think you're just one player short of a very strong spine mm. as well. Because Leno is, is an excellent keeper. We know he's not 
perfect, but he's an excellent keeper. I think Gabriel, in very little time, has shown that he could become really a, a big player for us. Then you've got Partey, and then you've got up front, you've got you've got Aubameyang, obviously. Mm. It's just one little thing which you know um, is missing out, which is basically link between. Well, creator, basically. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it could be as well that what Arteta's um, idea of, of the team that he wants, the team that is primarily um, energetic, dynamic, um, very strong in transitions, very tough to, to, to be down. In fact, I'm just describing Atletico de Madrid, aren't I, at the moment? <laughs> and uh, with some absolutely unbelievable finishes at the other end, which Obama Young is, and which Atletico have always had. So maybe, you know, we are... We, <laughs> we're evolving into Atletico de London, uh, Atletico de Londra, uh, which is <laughs> not something that would have come to our mind when Mikel Arteta arrived at uh, the club coming from uh, his apprenticeship with Pep Guardiola. Um, it's rather the, yeah, it's completely the, the, the opposite. Uh, but it, it would make sense. I mean, it's a, it's a style and it, it is an identity and, uh, and which relies a lot on the efficiency of the people up front which is one of the things that slightly uh, bugs me at the moment. Uh, one of the few things that bugs me is that I don't like the fact, and I'm sorry for using this word, which I know many people uh, use, but I don't like the fact that we score more than our expected goals in nearly every game. I don't like it because there's one point when suddenly you lose a player or you're not quite as lucky or this or that, and it catches up with you. Mm. So we've got to do better in this, in, in this, in this uh, respect. But it might be that it is what Mikel Arteta has in mind is that this, yeah, this ultra-dynamic, ultra-energetic, ultra-quick uh, and, and trenchant kind, kind of football, which is also incredibly difficult to break down. Um, it could be, and it could be a recipe for success in the division that we're in at the moment. Can I ask you um, your thoughts on what's happened or happening with, with William Saliba? Um, you know, obviously, when a club goes out and pays twenty-eight million pounds for an eighteen-year-old central defender, there is an element, especially a club like Arsenal, which is usually um, quite circumspect in how it spends sums of money that big. Um, even if you know um, they've done it in the past, but they've done it on on certainly more experienced players. Um, what are your thoughts on what's happened with him? I know expectations have been too high. The idea that he was going to come in and fix our defence uh, overnight were completely unrealistic. But were you a bit surprised, for example, that he was left out of the Europa League squad, which seemed to me like potentially a reasonable place for him to start developing uh, at this club? Yes, and, and to be honest, I wish I, uh, I could tell you, um, give you in-the-know information, and, and I, I genuinely can't in this particular case, which is a bit surprising because nothing has either, you know, permeated on, on the French side either. And um, what I would say is that he's still very, very young. I mean, he's, he's 19. Mm. He's a very, very young player. So we shouldn't expect him anyway to have a lot of playing time at, at that kind of level um, for a while, especially given the competition that there now is at, at in his position, uh, he might not also be um, the kind of player we, who is suited to um, a three or five at the back. Uh, it could be that you see, I'm using the conditional here because I'm a bit like everybody else. I'm a bit flummoxed by that. Um, mm. I can understand, for example, when we go for for, for Gabriel uh, completely. Um, 
but I'm looking, I mean, how many, I mean, we were talking about it just before, you know, pressing record, but we've got how many centre-backs at the club? Eight. One of whom, That's of course, insane. Socrates is not in the Europa League squad and potentially won't be included in the Premier League squad, which has to be named or finalised on Monday, I think it is. Um, is it Monday or Tuesday? Uh, the 20th, anyway, which is Tuesday. So by Tuesday, Mikel Arteta has to leave two non-homegrown players out of his squad. It might well be the same, too. Uh, that were left out of the squad for the Europa League, which of course includes Mesut Ozil as well, but that's a, a discussion for another day. Um, but it would leave, because Saliba is under 21, he would be available for the Premier League squad. Um, yep. It would still leave us with seven central defenders, uh, Louise, Holding, Chambers, Mustafi, Saliba, Pablo Marie, and Gabriel. Wow. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a, maybe we could offload a few to Manchester City because they seem to like buying those. For big, big money as well. Ah, yeah, 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 absolutely. But no, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit baffled. I mean, I mm. don't think it's a comment on, the, uh, on the, the quality of the player. I'm not aware that there have been any problems with the player either. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, Andrew. I can't really enlighten you much more than by telling you that I'm as surprised as everybody else is. Okay. Well, look, one of those stories um, that's yeah going to play out, I think, over the, the course of the season. There is the EFL deadline for transfers, which is tomorrow. But at his press conference today, Mikel Arteta seemed to indicate that Saliba would be staying at Arsenal. So maybe they're looking at a couple of really intense months on the training ground to to sort of get him up to speed and see yeah. where we are in January and he could be included as and when we make progress to the group stages perhaps of the Europa League. Yeah, the, the other thing as well is that um, the, the, the health situation, physical situation of the players is, is very much a close book to us. You know, it's something mm. which never leaves the training ground. It might be that there are other other primes that we're not aware of. It might be as well that they, they they had something in mind for him and it didn't quite work out the way, you know, during the transfer market and during the transfer window and that we will see in January, blah, 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 blah. So, um, no, um, I, the, the only positive in that is that we have actually a very decent centre-back who is, um, and we have so many good centre-backs that even this decent centre-back cannot make the list. Mm. <laughs> That's the way to see the half the glass half full when she's probably near empty. Sure. <laughs> well, look, uh, we, we'll see. Just very finally, um, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that many people will not have had the chance to get all the way through Arsene Wenger's book. Um, yeah. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, so I don't want to go into details, but I, I, I think we just have to touch on it this week. He's done a lot of press, a lot of... Um, interviews uh, to promote the book as you would expect. Um, can I ask you just for sort of one takeaway from it? Um, I'm assuming that you've finished it and read it. Not quite finished Right. It. I'll give you mine um, uh, based on what I've uh, heard so far. I'm doing the audiobook version, even though I said on uh, the podcast on Monday, I didn't think it would be that great because I, I'm not sure. He's a brilliant speaker, 
Arsene, absolutely brilliant speaker when he's, you know, just talking off the cuff. But when he's reading from a script or from a book, it's not quite the same. So it is a, a little bit different. And I think the experience would be a bit different for when you read it, when you sit there and read a book. You could just read it in his voice because we all have it in our heads after so many years. But I think what, what was really interesting to me was in the early stages of the book, he talks about his upbringing uh, in the Alsace. Uh, and he talks about how how kind of tough it was. And it was of its era and of its generation, obviously, the men working in the fields, I think is a phrase that he actually uses. At 14, you get a, I think he said, you get a watch and a drink or a cigarette and you go to work in the fields. And he seems to really be um, molded by that part of his upbringing, by that part of his life. And you can understand why. And it's very traditional and very old fashioned. Mm -hmm. But then when he talks about football and he talks about the way he came to develop his own understanding of the game, this like almost from the very start, there's a there's a he's seeking new ways and new avenues to develop players and to understand the game and, and you know, to implement new technologies and, and those kind of things, which maybe is at odds with what people think about him as a, a somewhat traditional coach. So I found that particular part very interesting. You know, this sort of divergence between this old-fashioned outlook, which he holds quite dear and quite sacred, but with this constant striving for something new. Yes, well, that's... You've basically described the man, I think, <laughs> pretty well. Um, I I don't know what to add to that because you've described the man pretty well, right. and um, and and it's it's a bit. I suppose it's paradoxical. Would you say? Yeah. Or is it? Is that? Well, it's paradoxical and it is not because he's he's a man of the border. So when you are, and I'm, I'm also speaking as, you know, um, a country bumpkin myself who has had an education, which to be honest, is not very, very different from that of uh, Arsene. So explain that to me as a man of the border. You mean because of what, you know, where he grew up uh, close well, to the Germany? Province. I mean, yeah. and, and particularly the, because the fact that there is Germany, which is just around the corner where he spent a lot of time when he was a young man. And yeah. uh, especially in terms of, in terms of footballing culture, he's always been looking towards Germany and he, he was traveling um, a lot to Borussia Mönchengladbach. Gladbach and Kaiserslautern and, 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 and other, I mean, there are loads of things he doesn't talk about in the book and in this particular aspect of his life. But um, he, he, I, I think that when you're, you're a provincial and, um, and, you know, academically doing well, as he was, uh, and again, I, I speak as somebody who comes from, is a country, country bumpkin like he is. And in France, it's not quite the same perhaps as elsewhere. And that doesn't mean that your horizons are necessarily limited to um, your town, your county, because mm. of the type of education we receive. Um, because um, it, yeah, it's, it's a different world um, altogether. And, um, and you're encouraged, actually, to... Um, uh, to, to discover the world beyond where you come from. So you can live in two worlds at the same time. Mm. And he still does, because in terms of his values and his, the way he sees the world, what is very interesting in him, I think, which is, by the way, what you're saying in, in, in other ways, is that he's both an extraordinary traditionalist and a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting but, it, yeah. And, 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 but both can coexist. You know, Robespierre was... 
a traditionalist and a conservative in a conservative many ways and a revolutionary and he was born in Arras, the north of France, not not Paris. Mm. Uh, and it, it's it's something which I believe is quite French. I mean, is that uh, too much of a generalization to say that? And also perhaps has to do with the generation you come from, particularly in his case, which is like just a post-war generation. Yeah. And and when you basically have to rebuild the country, and don't forget what happened to, to the Alsace, you know, it was integrated into the greater Germany, to the greater Reich. Um, you know, he, if Alsen had been born six years earlier, the guy who would have been, have had his portrait in the local town would have been Adolf Hitler. Never forget that. Mm. And and so it does change who you are completely. And and also I think we maybe that's our apprehension of it, which is which is slightly wrong. And that the coexistence of those two traits is something actually which is ingrained um, not just in his own personality, but in his own region. And I would say in his whole generation. He just happened to be somebody who also, he had the academic gift, uh, which enabled him to get out of, of that world. I mean, you had to have it, to yeah. be honest. But it was easier, especially in those years of reconstruction, um, the, the people were encouraged to do that. And so um, I, I hope I'm making sense, because this you, is such a huge subject that you open here, which I find absolutely fascinating, the fact that uh, France is a country where the 19th century lasted very, very, very late and coexisted with the 20th and the 21st. It's a very, very odd thing to say, but we are deeply, uh, we are a deeply rural country. But at the same time, we are a country which has uh, a potential for, for renewal and, and revolution, which is, which is great. Uh, and I mean, great, I didn't mean that in the sort of a, the um, the moral sense of it, sure. or it's brilliant or whatever. No, it's just great in terms of the dimension. And and Arsene is, is for me, is very French uh, in, in that respect. And he's a Frenchman from the Alsace, so he's also the Frenchman who is, whose culture is, uh, you know, is, is, is also bipolar in the proper sense of the word, you know. Yeah. Uh, there, there is, it, in, he speaks Alsatian. You know, he's extremely keen, by the way, on the survival of the Alsatian language. And I know that even when he was at Arsenal, uh, there were a couple of occasions when during the week, uh, whereas, you know, normally you would, you would have been at the training ground all of the time, he would have traveled to Strasbourg to take part in, uh, in a meeting for the survival of the Alsatian language, things like that. Yeah, he so that does, shows you how deep his, uh, his involvement is he, with that. He does culture. say in the book that, you know, as a child, that was the only language he spoke. Yeah. For a long time, or for X amount of years, anyway. So, yeah, I mean, that's this is a discussion I think that we could have again, perhaps. Um, yes, the uh, the impact uh, on him and his personality, and how it applies to his outlook on football and his outlook on life and and everything else. Because uh, you know, he's still got an Alsatian accent, by the way. You wouldn't be aware of that because you hear him in English. Sure, when he speaks French, he, de he definitely has a provincial accent. Well, I mean, that's I, I wouldn't recognize the, the the difference in the same way. I'm sure that's that many strong, people, but it's there. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, when it's your own language, though, you recognize those those uh, subtle or not so subtle differences in in accents, which you don't uh, always in a, in a foreign language. Um, but yeah, maybe at some point we could have that discussion again because I think the 
the work that, would be that a he's great pleasure. yeah the work that he's done and and the some of the things that he talks about in the book um and how those have applied to to his life and how they've applied to the job that he's done in football and how i think he still sees some of the things that um, he did during his time as a football manager and at Arsenal through a very particular prism, I think, um, are, are are very, very interesting. So, yeah, let's maybe do that again at another time uh, because I, I'd love to have that chat with you. For now, though, um, I better let you go because I've taken up far too much of your time, but I appreciate it very much as always, Philippe. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, as ever, to Philippe for a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find Philippe on Twitter, of course, at Philippe Claire at Philippe Claire. For those of you who don't already know, as well as being a very fine journalist, Philippe is also a very fine songwriter, singer, and musician. And he has got a brand new album coming out in December. Louis Philippe is the name under which he records. Louis Philippe and the Nightmail have got an album coming out called Thunderclouds. If you'd like more information, if you'd like a sneak preview to have a listen to that, Check the show notes in your podcast app right now. There's a link there, and you'll also find a link on arsblog.com on the corresponding post for this particular episode of the podcast. So again, thank you to Philippe, and good luck with the record. Now, I told you I would give you the winner of the uh, Nicholas Bender competition that we did on the show last week. Um, The question was, who took the corner from which Nicholas Bender scored his first ever Arsenal goal? That thumping header against Tottenham. The answer, of course, was... Sesc Fabregas and the winner as chosen by the random number generator is Ben Lepley Ben Lepley well done to you Ben I'll be in touch I'll drop you an email I'll get your details and we'll make sure we get that book sent out to you myself and Philippe of course did reference the Arsene Wenger book towards the end of our chat there we are going to be doing a a dedicated uh, Arsene Wenger book podcast I think myself and Andrew and James will be doing something on that in the next week or so but we want to give people a chance to uh, read the book before we talk about it my early impressions and I'm maybe about halfway through is that this is a very broad look back at his uh, life and his career and there are obviously some interesting bits but I think if you're if you're going into this book looking for sensationalism if you're looking for answers to some of the the questions that we might have about what went on during his time at Arsenal, some of the uh, the grisly details, I don't think any of that is in there either. So it might in some ways be uh, not quite the book that people are expecting. So when we do have the conversation, when we do have the podcast, uh, we'll take some of your comments and feedback as well on that to, to weave into it, because I do think it's going to be interesting to see what people think of it. Anyway, that is something that we'll put together uh, in the coming weeks. Um, what else? Not much else. Other than, let's hope we can do the business against Manchester City on Saturday. Is this a good time to be playing Manchester City? They haven't started the season that well. Is it ever a good time to play Man City? I'm not sure that it is. Uh, If anything, they'll be redoubling their efforts to make sure that they correct what has gone wrong in the the first few games of the season. And uh, yeah, it is going to be very tricky as always. We know it is. We know they're a very difficult side, a very high quality side. And and, you know, we're still, for all the encouragement that we might feel, something of a, a work in progress. But it will be interesting to see what we do, how we do it, and who is going to be involved, of course. Will Thomas Partey start? If he's fit, if he's ready, 
There's no reason not to throw a £50 million signing into the mix. He's 27. He's not some kid who needs time to get used to the experience of top-flight football. He's been playing at a, a team in which the demands on him have been very, very high for the last number of years. So this won't be in any way... Um, I'm not going to say it's not going to be a challenge for him. Of course it is, because you've got to get to know your new teammates, etc., etc. But I don't think it's the kind of game that is going to phase him. Is this not the kind of game that he, he came to Arsenal to be involved in, to try and help us improve in? So let's keep fingers crossed that he is ready. As ever, myself and James will be here on Monday to record an Arsecast Extra. Fingers crossed we're talking about a good result, or at least not a bad result in the grand scheme of things. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. I'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. The Premier League Big Six present Project We're Going to Fuck You. After the resounding success of Project Multiple Subscriptions for that thing you only needed one subscription for. And Project Pay-Per-View. Paying more on top of those multiple subscriptions. Now, we're not just fucking the fans. We're going to fuck every single other club too. Project We're Going to Fuck You. And there's fuck all you can do about it. Now, bend over. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 